Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We continue our discussion, folks. John Farrell, Lisa Brama, to myself. And now is a conversation that could be two hours long because there is no one with a family more qualified on Russia and the fears of Mr. Putin than William Browder. Yes, he is founder, chief executive officer of Hermitage Capital Management. But what you don't know is his family's heritage back to the height of mathematics in America and before that, courage on continental Europe, Central Europe, and the bravery of fighting off tyranny. Bill Browder, honored to have you with Bloomberg Surveillance today. What would Earl Browder say? What would he say long ago to standing up to Vladimir Putin? Well, so just just to make it clear, so my grandfather was the general secretary of the American Communist Party from 1922 to 1945. And um, at a time when when Russia and America were at uh, war with the Nazis, the moment that the war ended, um, uh, Stalin kicked my grandfather out of the Communist Party for being too much of a capitalist and then started murdering his followers all over uh, all over Eastern Europe and other places. And, and there's a famous quote. Are we, so. are we retur- I don't mean to interrupt, Bill, but this is so, so important. With your perspective, are we returning to that tyranny? Um, there's there's no question that we're returning to that tyranny. Vladimir Putin um, is is a 1930s style European dictator who is doing exactly. I wouldn't compare him so much to Stalin as I would compare him to Hitler. Um, what we have going on right this minute, as we as we speak, um, is is the equivalent of when um, Adolf Hitler was taking a chunk of of uh, Czechoslovakia, and everybody was trying to figure out what to do. And first they tried to appease him. And it didn't work. And then we ended up with with uh, World War Two. Vladimir Putin is starting with Ukraine and make no no mistake about it. This is not the end goal. He, he has gotten bigger things in his sight. He wants he wants to dominate the European continent and he will move further. Bill, are you surprised that the U.S. hasn't joined the reporting, at least from the Financial Times, saying that the EU is preparing to freeze the assets of Putin and Lavrov? Um, well, I, first of all, I should say that I'm surprised that Europe has taken such a step. I mean, I've spent the last 10 years um, in a conflict with Vladimir Putin, trying to get the Europeans to do the bare minimum things in terms of human rights abuse and so on in Russia. And the European Union has always been um, the, the, on the back foot, never doing the right thing. And the, and the U.S. has always been the, uh, <clears throat> the country uh, taking the lead on this. And so I'm very surprised that the European Union has done this. I'm very happy that the European Union has done this, if it's for real. Um, and uh, and I'm sure that the U.S. will will um, will quickly uh, come into conformity with it. I don't think that it's uh, it's just uh, if you were to look around, uh, you know, two weeks ago, the Germans um, were not even ready to supply any military equipment uh, to the Ukrainians other than 5000 helmets. And now so- they're saying. Vladimir Putin. It's a pretty big step. Bill, given your intimate experience with the financial system of Russia and the subsequent uh, problems that can emerge there, what's your view on how effective some of these sanctions, some of these asset freezes could be at a time when so far it seems like they have not uh, caused Vladimir Putin to retreat in any way? Well, so far they haven't sanctioned Vladimir Putin. I mean, so 
Well, first of all, it's very important that, that when they say they're sanctioning Vladimir Putin, they're sanctioning also his trustees because Vladimir Putin, um, it's, it's very symbolic to say we're sanctioning Vladimir Putin. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have, he, he's an extremely rich man. He's worth, I, I would say, more than $200 billion, but none of that money is held in his own name. It's held in the name of people he trusts on handshake agreements. I call them oligarch trustees. Right. And so unless you were to sanction the top 50 oligarchs at the same time, you're not actually going to get his money. However, if you do, if you were to sanction those people, um, you're, you're hitting him exactly where it counts. Putin, he doesn't care if you sanction a Russian bank or if you do something to the oil industry. He cares about his own money. And if you actually right. get his money, then 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 he's pay, he's going to stop and pay attention because what you know, he's. He spent, he's worked very hard for the last 20 years, torturing, killing, host, taking hostage people and to try to get all their money um, right. and have all that money taken away. That, that's 20 years of hard work for a dictator. And so that would work. That would have a real and serious and dramatic right. effect. Bill, I want to get to headlines with John Farrell, and I want you to stay with us. But very importantly, your Hermitage Capital is based off St. Petersburg and one of the glorious museums of the world. That's 250 miles from Estonia. At what risk are the Baltic states based on your experience of Russia? Um, well, so, so my, in my estimation, so after Putin is done um, with Ukraine, um, assuming he gets done with Ukraine, and, and that's not a, a given, uh, the Ukrainians are fighting like hell and, and, and actually having some success at the moment. But assuming he, he's done with Ukraine, um, then his next goal is going to be to test the resolve of the United States and many countries in the EU to defend the Baltics. We, we have the, we're all members of NATO. It's, and NATO is a uh, one for all, all for one military defense organization. And, and Vladimir Putin, in his mind, doesn't believe that we will all come and defend uh, Estonia or Lithuania. He, d- he doesn't believe that America will want to go to war with Russia to defend a country most people have never heard of. Bill, I would love your reaction to these headlines in real time, so allow me to bring them to you. As you know, a little bit earlier this morning, there were talks between the Russian leader and the Chinese leader. According to State TV, the Chinese urged Russia and Ukraine to negotiate to address problems. We just had a headline moments ago. Let me read that out for you, and then I'd love your reaction. Russia is ready to send a delegation to Minsk for Ukraine talks. This, according to Interfax, they're ready to send their defence minister, foreign minister, for a delegation for talks. This according to Interfax. Bill, just as you react to that, what is your first reaction? What does that mean? How would you interpret that kind of report? The Chinese have spoken to the Russians. We're getting a headline now from Interfax. They're ready for talks. I'm thinking about what their objectives are at the moment, how the Ukrainians might receive a statement like that. What are you thinking about? Well, on one hand, we could say, wow, good news. Okay, um, there's talks now. Um, but, but the reality is, and I've been involved in all sorts of ugly conflicts and negotiations mm-hmm. with the Russians. They, 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 they stick this stuff out there to try to give a little bit of hope. You may remember a couple of weeks ago, they said, we're, 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 we're withdrawing our troops from the border. And remember that, that bunch of pictures of, of a few tanks going back and everyone, the markets went up, everyone breathed a sigh of relief and it meant nothing. The Russians can do talks. They should have been doing talks all along. Um, I, I, I wouldn't, I would put a, like a, a 2% probability that this leads to the end of the conflict in any, it's, it's pure, theater in my mind. But, you know, maybe I, I, I'd love to be proven wrong. Well, this market's responding to that theater. Not a big move, sir. But, Tom, we're seeing a move of about a third of 1%, a quarter of 1% into positive territory right. on the S&P. <clears throat> Looking at 10-year bond yields now at the highs of the session, up five basis points to about positive 
22. Off the back of that headline from Interfax, right. Tom, that Russia is ready to send a delegation to Minsk for Ukraine talks. Some of the haven ratios doing well as well. Swiss franc a little bit weaker. Bill Broder, can the markets be a tool against Vladimir Putin? The markets in a broader sense, the actions of London, the city, the actions of Wall Street, the actions of corporate managers, boards of directors exiting Russian companies. Does any of it have power over his decisions? I think it all has power. I mean, Vladimir Putin has spent 20 years recruiting all of these um, Gerhard Schroeders and the Ital former Italian prime minister and Austrian foreign minister, you know, and, and all of a sudden, after 20 years building up his uh, credibility, they've all in one fell swoop resigned from their uh, from their positions. Um, markets have, a, have an enormous um, uh, effect on Vladimir Putin. He's got to have m enough money to do all this stuff. And and so we, if we cut. So everyone says Russia's got 600 billion of, of uh, hard currency reserves. Well, let me tell you something. Um, if, if he's totally isolated, right. um, uh, they, they can burn through that real quick. The word that's been used by some of our guests has been pariah. If he's a pariah, how will we know he's separated and what will that mean? With all your knowledge, Bill Browder, of Moscow and St. Petersburg, how will the domestic Russian elite and the less elite react to Vladimir Putin as pariah, as removed? Well, I mean, they're, they're not happy at all. The Russians love to, you know, travel to to Paris and Italy and all, all these places and spend their money and live it up and pop the champagne and buy properties and do all this kind of stuff. And now all of a sudden, you know, they're they're not going to be welcome and their their bank accounts will be closed. And and it's going to be you know, it's it's not a lot of fun for the Russian elite to be in, in this position. But I should point out that Putin doesn't really care about what his people Think about him. He, do, he doesn't want to be overthrown by his people, but he's running a dictatorship. And anybody who says a bad word about him um, on the telephone <clears throat> and in private um, will get into trouble. Yeah. And so uh, it's not like th these people are going to, if they're unhappy because they can't go to skiing in Courcheval, France, um, they have any impact on him. But they're, they're definitely not happy. And, and there's been demonstrations all over Russia over the last 24 hours by Bill, regular people saying this is not good. Bill, you were talking about the theater uh, that you are basically interpreting this as that basically he's putting out a, a nugget of hope. Who is the hope for? Is it for the U.S.? Is it for Europe or is it for China? No, it's not for China. China, China has got nothing to do with this. Um, uh, the, the, the purpose of this is that he's seen how real, as super angry everybody has become around the world, and, and I think he's surprised that the Europeans have stepped up and done all these dramatic things, like put his name on a sanctions list. And and uh, the best way of of trying to like uh, create some divisions among allies is is to um, ha hang a, a tiny little fig leaf of hope so that. Everyone says, wait a second, maybe we shouldn't be so tough. Maybe we shouldn't follow through on that. Maybe we shouldn't do the, the, ter the next terrible thing. Maybe we shouldn't cut them off from Swift. Let's negotiate. That, that's, how he, that's how he plays this game. And then he hopes that in two weeks' time, we've all, you know, all of our uh, you know, outrage has subsided to a, to, a, to a point that he just carries on doing what he's doing, but, but he doesn't have us all aligned together um, trying to cause him trouble. Bill, we're lucky to have you with us this morning. Thank you very much for Bill your Browder, view on the situation. So Bill Browder there of Hermitage Capital.
What we've tried to do the last number of days with our wonderful team is bring you authorities like General Hodges, infantry on the ground for the U.S. Army, a U.S. Army putting 7,000 more troops into Europe, I believe, this morning or last night. We just showed you Bill Browder with all of his family's heritage of Eastern Europe, the difficulties of Stalin and Ford. And now we do the same thing from Ukrainian village in Chicago, Illinois. If you are Ukraine or from Eastern Europe, there is a huge position in Chicago, Illinois, of people watching this crisis. One of those is a daughter of Chicago. Natalie Jurasko joins us from Puerto Rico uh, this morning. She's a former Ukraine minister of finance and, of course, her service to Puerto Rico with their financial issues as well. Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. You are one of the lead members of Ukraine. There's no question about that. What have you learned in your phone calls to Kiv and all of Ukraine in the recent hours? It has been a horrible night and morning in Kiev. Uh, the, uh, the the bombing has taken everyone by surprise with its intensity. Um, most people are in uh, bunkers, uh, in bomb shelters, spent the night in those bomb shelters right now, um, being advised to stay there. Uh, and as you probably know, I think uh, it's fair to share with you that there is an incredible disappointment with the strength and with the urgency of the Western response to what is, in essence, an unprovoked genocide of the Ukrainian people. What does the Ukrainian community of America need from President Biden? Well, this is what the Ukrainian community in Ukraine needs. Uh, the Ukrainian community in America supports that. But what we need from President Biden and from all of the Western democracies is much more urgent, much deeper, much broader financial sanctions, sanctions against energy companies, sanctions to and the disinformation in the media world. And on top of that, much more massive support for the Ukrainian military that is defending itself. No one is asking for US boots on the ground, but yes, we need more ammunition, we need more javelins, we need more stingers, and they need to be trucked in from our Eastern flank in, the, in NATO so that the Ukrainian military can do its job in not only defending Ukrainians, but frankly, all of Europe. Because if it doesn't end in Ukraine, and if it doesn't end with democracy in Ukraine, everyone else will be will be involved later anyway. Natalie, so we have no can you talk a little bit about the defense uh, attempts and the de defense efforts in Kiev, in uh, the broader Ukrainian region, given the fact that there is a conscription among all men, I believe, age 18 to 60? How forceful is it? How quickly is it assembling? First of all, it's important to note that people were lining up yesterday, even before that, to volunteer their services. Ukrainians are extraordinarily committed to defending their peace and freedom. This is not the first time in 30 years, but this is certainly worse than anything we experienced in 2014 or prior to that. I will tell you that um, men are not being allowed to leave. Uh, I have heard the stories and, and spoken to people who mm -hmm. are trying to leave with their families. Men are taken out of the buses and told to go serve. And frankly, it's only fair. Everyone needs to serve at this point. The only hope we have is that the Ukrainian military continues what has been an extraordinarily um, successful defense thus far in, in terms of right. uh, what, what's happening on the ground. 
Natalie, you are arguably in the Western world the definitive expert on small business in Ukraine, up to Belarus with your Horizon Capital as well. Please, your opinion of how Mr. Putin, if he takes Ukraine, and if we assume he's taken Belarus, what is his threat to the Baltic states? There's no question that President Putin has explained to the world very clearly that he believes the collapse of the Soviet Union was a mistake. It is also very clear that he has absolutely no problem attacking unprovoked peaceful countries as he's doing right now in Ukraine. So obviously the Baltics should be very concerned that they're next, extraordinarily concerned. Natalie, one more question, if I may, and an arduous morning for you and the news flow as well. We have sanctions. I don't mean to be trite, but from where you sit and with your experience, do sanctions work? Sanctions that are weak and or are doled out too slowly will not work um, because this is not about the, the effort cannot be about, you know, seeing what happens in a month or two in the Russian economy. What we need to do are sanctions that create such a dire uh, response to what they're doing that it causes the elites in Russia to think twice. If it doesn't cause President Putin to do so, at least it causes the elites. Therefore, all of the banking system, SWIFT, it has to be eliminating the, uh, sanctioning all the state-owned energy companies, and it has to be done immediately. It cannot be done in tranches. Hundreds of people are dying every hour. We do not have time for tranches. It also needs to be more than money. It needs to be kicking out and ending our diplomatic relationships with Russia. There should not be a diplomat of Russia enjoying peace and democracy in our Western countries if they will not allow Ukrainians to enjoy peace and democracy. So there are a variety of things and it needs to be massive, urgent, meaningful, and it will have an effect. But doling it out in tranches over a period of weeks, absolutely not. Natalie, I remember first talking to you about eight years ago, and it's saddening that we're having this conversation still and doing it again eight years later. Natalie, thank you. Natalie Juresko there, the former Ukraine finance minister. John, on the liquidity of the financial system of Europe, we have the right guess. Let's get to Tony Crescenzi, market strategist and portfolio manager at PIMCO. Tony, what I'd love straight off the bat is just John. your observations in the last 24 hours, how the market's been functioning, what you've been seeing. It does seem uh, investors are doing what they often do, is, which is take a leap of faith. In fact, all of the debt that exists in the world exists in part because of that leap of faith. Investors have to have confidence in cash flows, whether it be to bond investors, to equity investors, be it dividends, buybacks, etc. It seems they're retaining that. Uh, and we, we know that over time, uh, human beings, generally speaking, show a remarkable ability to adapt. Uh, it's the phrase, keep calm and carry on, is a phrase you, of course, attributed to uh, England in, the, in World War II. And Winston Churchill is a, is a feeling that investors tend to have. And so it's not a, a shock that the echoes from recent inflation data 
uh, at the Fed at least, uh, are louder than the rumblings in Ukraine. It's a sad state of affairs, but yeah. it is finance well, and the way things are. Tony, uh, just right now, in the here and now, there is an issue that things are moving so quickly that sometime parts of the marks, uh, markets actually do break. And people are looking for potential nodes of contagion, particularly in money markets with the Russian sanctions on particular oligarchs, particularly with a flight to cash amid all the uncertainty. Have you seen any signs of that? Are you looking for that as we do see all of these developments really evolving in real time? There remains uh, ample financial liquidity in in the global financial system, clearly in Europe, also uh, Asia, and of course, the United States. So the, the, the easiest gauge to look at is the repo, overnight transactions, the exchange that occurs between uh, two parties, between securities and cash, that's still extraordinarily low, reflecting the surfeit of money that exists in the system. And even if there were uh, some tightening of conditions in that realm, we would expect the central banks to do what they always do, is, which is rev up printing presses. Yeah. And they've certainly shown a remarkable ability to do that in the last decade or so. So perhaps liquidity uh, is consistent or at least ample. However, there has been a huge uh, divergence right now going between the U.S. and Europe with respect to what the impact from the Ukrainian conflict could be. We just get this headline that the ECB's lane sees the Ukrainian war shaving uh, up to 0.4 percent from the 2022 GDP. This is according to Reuters. How much have you shifted your view on how quickly the ECB could move versus the Federal Reserve? Uh, on the on the margin, we think that the the stress reduces, of course, increases the downside risk to global economic growth. Uh, PIMCO will hold a quarterly meeting in about a week and a half in Newport Beach and around the world via video uh, with its investment professionals to discuss the matter. But we currently have penciled in the growth rate of in the mid threes or so for the U.S. this year and close to four, somewhere in the high threes for Europe. Uh, the downside risk, of course, emerges from uh, a drop in confidence in Europe more than it would be in the United States and the impact of energy costs, which is greater in Europe than it will be in the United States. And so there is some impact there, but it's probably too soon to say uh, that the numbers will come down. And importantly, looking at the two-year two story, uh, one should remain sanguine right now with a high degree of caution about the the, the predictability of that, though, uh, with respect to the, the global outlook. And that's what markets seem to be reflecting with the current information it has. Things could change very rapidly. And so we'd say uh, about the outlook, there's a high degree of uncertainty. And so one wants to have portfolios that are liquid, resilient and agile in this climate. Does that mean more cash, Tony? <clears throat> a little more cash, not to say uh, sell everything, of course. Uh, we think right now just simply maintaining flexibility. This might mean choosing more liquid assets, uh, staying in, in, staying invested, but simply choosing more liquid assets. For example, in the credit markets, uh, an institutional investor could choose a credit index rather than cash instruments because the amount of money on the bid and offer, the so-called quote depth, tends to be rather large uh, in, in comparison. Tony, always wonderful to catch up with you. Important moment to get thank your you, thoughts. John. Thank you, sir. John, Tony Crescenzi of PIMCO. Seema Shah joins us now from Principal Global Investor. Seema, let's start there. The difficulty to stay level-headed in a moment like this one. Yeah, you know, you see the volatility, you see the headlines, and of course, the knee-jerk reaction is going to be to go straight into cash. 
But when we look at previous geopolitical crises and the way that the market has reacted, it's really down to the macro backdrop. So if you were to see a significant deterioration in the macro backdrop because of a surge in oil prices, then yes, you know, we should be fleeing for safe havens. However, if you're not going to see a very significant move in inflation and you're not going to see the Fed moving from its path, then I think the macro backdrop actually still stays pretty solid. Um, and this is probably a good time to keep your head and, and stay in the game. Seema, how will the central banks and particularly Chairman Powell adjust yield in the next six months? I understand there's massive uncertainty, but what will you be listening for from the chairman, the presidents and the governors? Yeah, look, they've clearly got a very, so this is a, they were already facing a dilemma and this is just simply increase that dilemma. Um, we need to be hearing out for what they're going to say about financial conditions. But really, given the uncertainty and the fact that they have said that they're very much data dependent, it's very difficult to see that this conflict is going to push the Fed off its path within the near future. Once we get into the second half of the year, then it gives them time to really analyze, to see what the repercussions are, if it is still continuing. And at that point, that's when you could see maybe a pause in the Fed if you are um, having consumers start to really react to a rise in oil prices. Uh, but until then, actually, we don't see much of a change in what the Fed was planning to do. For weeks, this divergence between the U, uh, U.S. and the European Union has been cause for some people to shift their assets into European equities. How much does the development with Russia invading Ukraine change that equation for you? Well, you know, when we came into 2020, uh, 2022, um, I know the consensus view was they looked at valuations, Europe looking a lot cheaper, technicals, fundamentals, maybe the growth story was looking that much stronger. But actually, we maintained an overweight to US versus Europe because of the concerns around the conflict and also because of concerns around national gas prices. Uh, now, we know that Europe is more vulnerable to any kind of move. So if anything, this has just confirmed our, con our concerns about Europe and actually inc uh, increases our conviction that the US is probably the safest place to be sitting. And Seema, just a word on the bank's trade, if you can, as well, because that's come up so many times in the European story over the last few weeks. Bank of America put out a note this morning. Don't like them, obviously. The upside is limited now for yields on bonds. The dollar's set to get stronger. Growth's set to decelerate in Europe. Any words of advice for people who are sitting there in European banks still, Seema? Look, I think you need to have some... Um, some exposure to value. And I think really it's going to be quality value. If you're going to be in banks, look at that quality. What are the balance sheets? What are the cash um, the cash power of these places? Um, overall, though, we don't think that that's the best place to be. We don't see considerable upside to yields from here, maybe a little bit, but not too much. So we think there are other sectors which would be preferable and actually energy. If you have any concerns about geopolitical shocks or inflation, probably energy is your better place to be sitting. Seema Shah of Principal Global Investor. Seema, thank you. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.